Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I'm just the co-host, Austin. And he's got a whole glass of tea, so... I'm not going to spill it like in episode whatever. You guys know what that means. In episode whatever, in like multiple episodes, every time you have tea. And why do you put ice in it? It's a Yeti. It's going to be so noisy. All right, we get in here and talk shit or to record? (laughs) Okay, so before we get started, of course, there's some stuff we're going to talk about. First of all, we are recording outside on our deck. So if you hear screaming, um, we're not actively witnessing a murder. There are actually kids out here playing. In the neighborhood. And then um, also this week, I am going to be recording with Austin a bonus episode for everybody. It's not just a Patreon exclusive It was literally just a bonus episode this week, and it's an update on the Lori Vallow case. So you're going to want to listen to that because we're going to kind of dive into the legal process. And, you know, she was recently declared incompetent to stand trial. We're going to talk about exactly what that means because I went ahead and figured it out. I wanted to know. So I'm going to share that with you guys just in case there are some of you that are like, oh, my gosh, no way she's going to get away with this. Don't worry. She's not. So listen for that one. We have a few new Patreons. Well, two, Cameron Rubo and Justin Ware. (laughs) Not often we get a dude as a Patreon. Congrats. I know we only have a few. We appreciate that. Yeah. They are they're few, but they are mighty and they're important. We appreciate you. (laughs) We appreciate them all. All of them. Okay, geez. Here we go. Are you ready for today's case? Austin, it is going to be a doozy. This is gonna be a good episode. You're not going to want to miss this one. <laughs> oh, man. It's going to make you mad. This one's okay. going to make you mad. Today, we're talking about Diane Downs. Have you ever heard of this chick? Not even a little bit. Shocking. Diane Downs was born in Phoenix, Arizona on August 7th of 1955. Her parents, Willa Dean and Wes Fredrickson, were only teenagers when they got married and had Diane. They were old-time Baptist parents who were super conservative and strict. And due to their age, they may have fallen short in some aspects of parenting. She said that her dad spent way too much time with her mom, so her mom spent no time with her. Um, So she also admitted that when she was 12, her dad sexually abused her. And when she was 13, she said she tried to cut her wrists. So she definitely struggled growing up. And, you know, maybe she felt like she was neglected or also abused. I mean, one thing we're going to learn about Diane Downs is that she has a hard time telling the truth. So it's hard to know what is fact and what is fiction in this story. But one thing is for sure, Diane Downs craved attention. And so I don't think she would... I think she's desperate to get it any way she can, even if it means lying about something like that. So anyway, that's just my two cents. doesn't really matter. In high school, because her parents, especially her dad, was so strict, she wasn't allowed to wear trendy clothing or you know, participate in any current fads. So she was kind of an outcast in school. And then at age 14, she was enrolled in a charm school. And this is when she really kind of started to blossom and mature a little bit. Or, And I say mature as in like hit puberty. She got herself a nice haircut. Her clothes got nicer. And boys were kind of starting to notice her. The glow up. The glow up. Yeah, I guess. 
Naturally, she craved the attention, having not got it, having not gotten it at home. So she ate it all up. She was very flirty. She became very boy crazy. And one of the boys she dated in high school was a boy named Stephen Downs. They quickly became an item. They did absolutely everything together. Same name. No, she was born Diane Fredrickson. Where did I get that name? Because her name is Diane Downs. Now oh, she got married. Shit. Oh my god, you're so I lit pretty. Two and two together, didn't I? You're so cute and pretty. Yeah. So anyway, after graduation, Stephen went to the Navy, and Diane went to Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College in Oregon, California. They kept in touch through letters. They promised to stay faithful to one another. But that didn't really last, as Diane was actually expelled from her school after only one year for, quote, promiscuous behavior. Well, I'm just going to let you know, somebody had the same thought I did, that she was going to be ended up with her cousin. And <laughs> psych, it wasn't in Phoenix, it was down in good old Alabama. Okay, so we're still talking about how you thought her name was Diane Downs and I'm she dated a boy named Stephen Downs. And I have none against Alabama. I think Are Alabama's we going to get past cool. that? Or? So if you're in Alabama, I'm, just, I'm not sorry, I was just kidding. May I move on? She got promiscuous. Yeah, she got a little, a little hoochie mama. Pretty girl. In college. So anyway, she got expelled. Diane moved back in with her parents, which was not ideal. She really hated being under their strict rule. And around this time, Stephen came back from the Navy, and they got back together, rekindled their relationship, and ran away together and got married on November 13th of 1973. Okay. So... Their marriage was, of course, a bit rocky, as I'm sure you can imagine. They're both so young, they ran away together in an ill-planned attempt to escape authority. And it always sounds like this romantic Hollywood love story until you're really living it and you're facing the realities of adulthood and responsibilities. And you can't afford anything but potato chips for dinner. Yeah. So Diane began to feel like Steve was just a replica of her father. She started realizing these things. He was very domineering and demanding. Uh, allegedly treating Diane sometimes like his maid. But then Diane became pregnant. And for the first time in her life, she felt like she had a chance to feel what true love was really supposed to feel like. So Christy, her first daughter, was born in October of 1974. And Diane described Christy as the first good friend she ever had. She said, quote, Christy was the first person that really, really just plain loved me, end quote. But shortly after having Christy, Diane up and left to join the Navy, leaving Steve at home to take care of their baby by himself. She only lasted about three weeks, though, before quitting because of, quote, severe blisters, end quote. Quitting from severe blisters? Yeah, she quit because the blisters, the blisters were just too much. So she quit the Navy after three weeks. The Navy's tough, guys. It ain't for sissies. So after returning from her quick stint in the Navy, Diane became pregnant with their second daughter, Cheryl. Now, Cheryl was a bit colicky, and I don't know if this is what caused Stephen to do what he did next, but he went and got a vasectomy. However, Diane became pregnant again. And if you're thinking it was because the vasectomy didn't work, you would be wrong. Diane had an affair. So she ended up getting an abortion at about six weeks. Even though Diane had stepped out on the marriage, Stephen really wanted to make it work. So they stayed together, even though they were both totally unhappy. 
1978, the family moved to Mesa, Arizona, where Diane and Stephen both worked for the same mobile home manufacturer. And that is where Diane met multiple men that she inevitably fooled around with. And eventually she became pregnant again with a little boy this time. Stephen Daniel Downs was born on December 29th, 1979. And even though Danny is what they ended up calling him, was not biologically Stephen's, Stephen chose to accept Danny as if he was his son. And I mean, he was even named after him. That's so weird to me. That's pretty weird. This kid has a different biological dad because you stepped out, but you're going to name him after. And he knows. The dad that's raising him knows. Like, that's crazy to me. But, you know, to each their own. However, eventually the strain on the marriage was just too severe at this point, And they finally decided to divorce when Danny was about a year old. So Diane moved in with Danny's biological father. But at this point, this change was kind of brewing. Diane was becoming more and more withdrawn from her duties as a mother. She worked as often as she could. She stayed away from home as much as she could, getting babysitters quite frequently. One sitter said, quote, Diane put everything before those kids. If Danny wanted attention, she would push him away. But the worst thing was, one time I caught Cheryl jumping on the bed, and I said that was not permitted. I made her sit in a chair and think about it. Cheryl sat quietly for a while, and then she looked up and said, Do you have a gun here? To which the babysitter replied, Of course not. Why? And Cheryl said, I want to shoot myself. My mom says I'm bad all the time. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that so sad? Yeah. I mean, that is terrible. So... Then in 1981, Diane started working full-time for the U.S. Post Office in Chandler, which is just south of Mesa, Arizona. Of course, she meets this new man there. They start dating. Diane falls in love with him, but he actually ends up leaving Diane, to her surprise. She was so devastated by this that she moved to Springfield, Oregon, for what she hoped would be a fresh start. Then on May 19th, 1983... Diane said that she got a phone or she got a phone call from someone requesting that she come pick up some pictures for her boyfriend, Rick. She decides while she's out, she'll also run by her friend Heather's house because Heather was interested in buying a horse and Diane found this ad where someone was looking to like adopt out their horse. So anyway, she packs up the kids at 930 at night and drives to Heather's house to give her this ad she found. And then after she leaves Heather's house, she's driving and she, she chooses to go down this back road to do some sightseeing at 9.30 at night. Sounds pretty sketch. Sounds like the ideal time to do sightseeing when you can't sight anything at all. That sounds pretty sketch. Super sketch. So she's going down this two-lane highway. It's really dark. And she comes upon this shaggy-haired guy waving her down, obviously needing help. So she stops the car. She stops with two kids in the car. Three kids. Three kids in the car at 9.30 at night. Yeah, they're all asleep in the back seat. This is all a crock of shit. Yeah. The kids are all in the back seat asleep at this point. So she gets out and asks the man what's going on. He says to her that he wants her car, to which she replies, you've got to be kidding. And they get into this scuffle. At one point, she said the man reaches into his car with his gun and shoots the three sleeping children in the back seat. Oh, my gosh. While Diane is trying to fight this man off her car, 
He fired his gun, striking Diane in her left arm. She pretends to throw the keys to the car in the woods in an attempt to distract him, which makes no fucking sense to me. First of all, it's not like a dog where you're like throwing a bone to like get it, you know, you pretend to like get your dog to run away. It's like a funny joke. What would even be the point of throwing the keys when the guy wants your car? Like, what what did she really think he was going to do in reaction to her pretending to throw the keys? It just doesn't make any sense. But she says that while he was looking away to see where the keys went, she hopped into the car, started the engine, and made a run for it. What are the odds that her kids are all dead and she has one wound in her arm that's not crazy? Yeah, not life-threatening. Yeah. So she says that she drove like a lunatic to the hospital and that once she arrived, she rushed to the ER and said, please, quick, my babies, my kids have been shot. Cheryl died on the way to the hospital, and Danny and Christy were still alive but in really bad shape. Danny, who was three years old at the time, was paralyzed from the waist down, and Christy, who was eight, suffered a massive stroke. The surgeon who worked on Christy was able to get her relatively stable, even though she was in awful shape. She couldn't talk. I mean, it was unknown how she was even going to recover after this, but... When the doctor came out to give Diane an update, he was taken aback by how calm Diane seemed. She never once shed a single tear the entire time she was there. And he was even more shocked when she muttered the words, quote, man, I really messed up my new car. There's blood all over it now. Oh, my goodness. Man, this is so typical of these idiots that you read these stories on. Just like terrible people. Yeah. And, you know, like you pointed out earlier, nurses also found it odd that Diane was only shot in the arm while her kids suffered catastrophic injuries. And not only when that... When they were fighting, when he, this this supposed guy with shaggy hair that flagged him down at 930 on a two-lane highway, chose to shoot all the kids and shoot her in the arm, and she was able to get away. Like, what? It's like, so far-fetched. It's all BS. You can tell the second you start telling it. Yep. So not only that, but on the way to the hospital, Diane managed to tie a towel around her own arm, but not assist any of the kids with their injuries. How convenient. Oh my gosh, this lady sucks. Yeah, she sucks big time. So investigators begin to realize that a lot of her story is just not adding up. Why did she have her kids out so late at night? Why would she stop for a random man on the road when her kids are in the backseat? And again, why was she only shot in the arm? And why did she wrap her own arm? I mean, there's just too many things. It's obvious. So police start getting suspicious, and they ask Diane if she would do a taped reenactment of exactly what happened. This is just days after the shooting, so Diane's arm is still in a cast. And they're recording the entire reenactment, and you can actually see... Diane checking her reflection in the mirror in the car while she's sitting in the driver's seat, making sure that her hair and her face looks okay. Then while she's doing the reenactment, her demeanor is disturbing. She is so flippant about the entire story. She demonstrates how she threw the keys and she's like, okay, I'm throwing the keys, throwing the keys, okay? Literally just like that. And then she demonstrates how she got into the car. And while she was doing that, she bumped her cast on something. So she starts laughing and she's like, I just hit my cast. Oh, this is worse than, and then stopped herself. 
And the investigators on the case believed that she stopped herself from saying, this is worse than when I shot myself. Then she did a ton of TV news interviews. And this like really did her in because, you know, people like this that love to talk, they always inevitably dig their own grave. We've seen it a million, a million times. And during these interviews, Diane became more and more aware that people were questioning the story about a bushy haired man flagging her down in the middle of the road. And during one interview in particular, she says, quote, If I had shot my own children, would I not have done a good job of it? Why would I have taken them to the hospital? Question mark. Or I mean, end quote. (laughs) Question mark. This is so ridiculous. She appears super agitated during this interview. And then in another interview, she's talking about witnessing Christy get shot and how it caused Christy to snap back to her own childhood and the entrapments of society and how this man was bigger and had more power over her. And as she watched the blood gush out of Christy's mouth, she actually chuckled a little bit as she said those words. As I watched the blood gush out of Christy's mouth. Meanwhile, Christy is in the hospital fighting for her life. She can't talk. She's barely in and out of consciousness. Like, it just is baffling. And then when she was told she was lucky to have survived, she said, quote, I don't feel lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for about a month, end quote. Then she has the audacity to say, I think my kids were lucky because if I had been shot the way they were, we all would have died. Tell you what, this is like... Not so much a mystery episode as it is just like world's dumbest criminal. It's just baffling that something so evil exists and is able to procreate. And Austin, this story gets crazier. So now the jig is up. The investigators are on to Diane. They get a warrant to search her house. And while they're in her house, they find her diaries and a ton of handwritten love letters to somebody named Nick. And it's spelled K-N-I-C-K. Well... It turns out this guy's name was Robert Knickerbocker, and he went by Nick. They worked together back in Chandler, Arizona, and he was a married but apparently separated man who Diane was having an affair with. Their relationship, though, was very one-sided, with Diane being practically obsessed with him, as she is with every man in her life, but him not really reciprocating those feelings. And when they broke up, she decided to leave Arizona for Oregon, And he admits that it was a huge sigh of relief, but Diane was really hoping he would chase after her. And when he never did, she became really desperate. But would she be desperate enough to kill her own kids just to be with a man or just to get his attention? Well, it came out through these letters that Robert really didn't want kids, that he liked kids, but he just didn't have any interest in being a dad. So just like that, a motive appeared that it was possible Diane attempted to kill all three kids so that she could be with Robert Knickerbocker. The state of Oregon ended up taking custody of the kids so Diane could not be around them. But Diane said herself in an interview on TV, quote, you can't replace children, but you can replace the feeling that they give you. And it's just so easy to conceive. Oh my gosh. And conceive she did. But with who? Well, she admits that when she was delivering mail on her route, 
She chose a man who was really good looking, had a good bone structure. And one evening she showed up at his house with some whiskey and weed and did the deed. And she knew her cycle very well, knew exactly when she'd be ovulating. And so she essentially tricked this man into getting her pregnant. And he never had anything to do with the baby. And uh, it just, it baffles me. It baffles me that Evil people like this can conceive so easily while well-meaning people who try desperately to have a baby struggle with it. That's, I just don't get that. But anyway, meanwhile, during the investigation, forensics showed that the blood blood splatter evidence did not line up with Diane's version of events, which is no surprise. There was no blood splatter on the driver's side of the car. There was no gunpowder on the driver's door or on the inside of the door. And there was even evidence that proved that Cheryl had tried opening her door and getting out of the car before she was shot in the back. Something that Diane never admitted to. She never indicated that any of the kids tried to open the door or get out of the car. They were... They were also able to retrieve shell casings from the crime scene that appeared to be from a Ruger 22 caliber handgun. Diane told police that she never owned a gun, but both Robert Knickerbocker and her ex-husband, Steve Downs, told them that that was not true. They ultimately found the handgun that Diane owned, and sure enough, when the shell casings were examined under a microscope, they were able to find the markings on the shell casings could have only come from the gun that Diane owned. Because every time you shoot a gun, these little markings from the inside of the barrel will mark the bullet or the shell casing. And it's kind of like every gun's own fingerprint. So lastly, a witness came forward who testified that he was driving behind Diane's car that night and he was really frustrated by how slow she was driving on the highway and the timing would have been after her and her kids were shot. So she's literally driving like eight miles an hour, almost probably hoping that they'll bleed to death on the way to the it's hospital. It's heartbreaking to imagine these kids looking down the barrel of a gun, knowing that their mom, who they're supposed to be someone they could trust more than anybody in the world, is shooting them. Like... Yeah, is pulling the trigger. And like picturing this little girl trying to run, like it's just like like they're figuring out that the person they can trust more than anybody betrayed them. And it's, like, it's so sad to think about. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely awful. So at this point, Christy still was not able to talk, but her nurses testified that any time Diane ever came into the room, her vitals shot through the roof. It's like she sensed that her mom was there or knew her mom was there and her heart rate started to rise. Her blood pressure started to rise. You can't fake that. No, you can't. And at this point, they're just patiently waiting for her to regain the ability to talk so that maybe she can tell them what happened because she really is the only witness capable of doing that. So Diane is brought in for another interview with police, and this time her story changes completely. This time she tells them that there were actually two men who attacked her and her kids, and that one of them even called her by name. And probably made her shoot her. <laughs> well, and I then, bet that's what she's, you know, I'm just guessing that's what she was going to say. Well, then she grows frustrated with the interrogation because they're basically telling her, your story stinks, we know it was you. So she tries to like bait them, telling them that she knows who did it, she knows him by name, and they can have fun looking for him without her help. And she storms out. She literally says that to investigators. 
but they still didn't arrest her, all because they're waiting on that one key witness, Christy, to regain the ability to speak so that she could tell them what happened. And slowly but surely, she became more and more able to communicate with people. She worked with therapists to work through exactly what happened that night. And at first, she was absolutely terrified to talk about what happened or who shot her. So the therapist made a deal with her. Christy would write the name of the shooter on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope and seal it, and then they'd throw it in a fireplace. And they did this over and over until she became more trusting of the therapist to talk about what really happened. And, you know, so she could like muster up the courage to talk about it. Mm -hmm. When she was finally willing to talk about who shot her, she allowed the therapist to open the envelope and sure enough, it said, my mom. Oh my gosh. I got the goosebumps. It's so freaking sad. It's horrible. It makes me want to cry. Yeah. So... February 28th, 1984, Diane was finally arrested. Nine months after she shot her own kids, she was very pregnant with a baby girl during the entire trial, and the prosecutor told the jury how desperately she needed male attention, and especially that of Robert Knickerbocker, who blatantly told her he did not want children. So she admitted to it? No, she never admitted to it. The prosecutor is telling the jury what he believes happened. The prosecuting attorney is the one against her. They played the tapes of her interviews depicting how flat and emotionless she was about the prognosis of her own children, and they brought forward the blood spatter evidence, the shell casing evidence from the gun Diane owned, and even the witness who drove behind her on the way to the hospital, testifying that she drove so slow that the speed barely registered on his speedometer. But the absolute most important testimony was that of Diane's own daughter, Christy. Christy testified in front of an entire jury and her own mother that on that fateful night they were driving when Diane stopped the car. Sorry to interrupt you. How how old is Christy? She was eight. Eight. Okay, go ahead. At this point, she might be nine. I just picture it in my head. Yeah, very young. So she says they are driving. Diane stops the car. Diane got out and got something out of the truck. She came back, knelt on the front seat, shot Cheryl, shot Danny, and shot her. And the prosecutor, Fred Hughie, asked Christy, do you know who shot Cheryl? And she said, yes, my mom. And he said, how do you know that? And she said, I watched. So not only are you getting shot by your own mother, but you're watching your mother shoot your siblings. I mean, it's like the most horrific thing. I mean, unfathomable. So on June 17th, 1984, Diane Downs was convicted on all three charges against her of murder and attempted murder. She was sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. She was required to serve 25 years before being eligible for parole. In 1986, the prosecutor on this case, Fred Hughie, and his wife actually adopted Danny and Christy, which is... A very the prosecutor, did? yeah, adopted oh, wow, Christine crazy. Danny. I mean, that is like the only silver lining I think to this story. I mean, right. obviously that they survived, but also that they were adopted to a good home. The prosecuting, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that has to like I can't even imagine. Okay, so I'm not even going to try to imagine what that would feel like, but I just. I hope that it gave them some sort of feeling of security and protection. Safety, yeah. yeah, safety. But just when you think this story is over, in July of 1988, Diane Downs escaped from prison. 
For 10 days, she managed to elude police from 14 different states. And this absolutely terrified Fred Hughie and his wife because they feared Diane would try to come after Christy and Danny. Not only that, but the baby Diane had after the trial was immediately given up for adoption and was adopted by the Babcock family. They feared as well that Diane would come after her also. So after she was captured, Fred Hughie lobbied for her to be transferred across the country all the way to New Jersey, the D- New Jersey Department of Corrections. And that's where she How did she went. escape? Do you know any details? She climbed a fence. She climbed a like a fence with the spikes on oh, the top. Oh. Yeah. She just climbed a fence and hopped off. And, and they then didn't catch her? Like they didn't for ten days. Wow. Yeah. I'm honestly kind of surprised she didn't end up pregnant. Do you know how she got caught? I don't remember the details. I remember watching a story on this case a long, long, long time ago. And I know she ended up staying with a man. I mean, shocker. But I don't remember how she got caught. No. Wow. Yeah. I'll have to look that up now. But anyway, Diane has been diagnosed with narcissistic, histrionic, and antisocial personality disorders. Not surprised. In 2009, she was considered eligible to go in front of the parole board. F that. But her release was denied. Over the years, she still maintains her innocence, claiming that she had absolutely nothing to do with the crime. And typically when you're denied parole, or at least maybe it's just in this state or in her case, but you have the opportunity to reapply every two years. But this parole board suspended her next eligibility by 10 years. So she will face the parole board again this year. Although the date is unknown, and I highly doubt she will get out, considering that she still shows no remorse or accountability for what happened. Even if she did, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. That's what I, I, you deserve I didn't to ever rot. Know about the justice system, to not ever still don't know a lot about it, but to the degree of research or listening that you've done on this episode, mm-hmm. and I'm just like mind blown by how it all works. Like yeah. the fact that anybody would even get a shot. Yeah. You killed three kids. You should never have a shot. Mm-hmm. Death penalty, if anything. If you, you don't tried believe to in the kill death three penalty, kids. Yeah, she- and if you don't believe in the death penalty, then that's fine. But, like, how can you, how can anyone say, I don't care if there's any remorse or anything, that a person ever deserves to be out? I don't get that. I don't either. I don't get how, you know, it's, I know that not every crime is black and white, but it just amazes me that one person can do the, the exact same crime as another and get a far harsher punishment. Yeah, and, and the inconsistencies... In the whole system, mm-hmm. no matter what it is. Yeah, it's very inconsistent. White collar crime. It's just, there's not a consistent thing out there, it seems like. I know, which is very disheartening because it makes you have a distrust for the justice system. A distrust for everything. You yeah, know, and question, that's... Like, if, obviously, it makes people question the motive of, oh, this person has money and power and that's how they got out of it. They're this or that or the attorney they can afford, whatever. It's just crazy. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't know that there's any – like I'm sitting here obviously pointing out the problem like everybody else does. I don't know the solution. I don't know enough about it. And well, there's just so many different acts and laws that have been passed that it's like – it's just impossible to treat any case the same. And I, I think ultimately it would have to come down to there being a wash of the – justice system and maybe kind of narrowing down. I don't know. I don't know because then you get yourself into more trouble because obviously not every crime is treated the same. I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. But I I believe in an eye for an eye. I think if you take a life, you deserve to spend your life in prison. And I know there's circumstances, but when there's malicious intent. If you take a life for the hell of it with malicious intent. 
Yeah, you deserve to stay behind bars. Yeah. If you take somebody a, breaks in your house and they're killing, messing with your family or whatever, and, you and kill it's self them, defense. Self defense. I get that. That's different. <laughs> That's different. But it is different. It is. What is that from? Um, train wreck with Amy Schumer. Train wreck. That's a funny movie. We reference that movie a lot. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty funny. Yeah. All right. So to finish up here, Anne Rule, who was a famous, a famous, she's a famous true crime author who wrote a best-selling book on this case. It's called Small Sacrifices. It was also made into a made-for-TV movie, uh, which starred Farrah Fawcett in 1989. Multiple episodes of 2020, podcasts, YouTube documentaries, lots of content has been dedicated to this case because there really is just nothing like it other than the Susan Smith case, which we covered in episode 27 and actually happened after Diane Downs. But anyway... It just goes against everything we know and understand as human beings when a mother kills her own kids for any reason, but especially for her own personal gain or for another man. Mm. I don't get it. I don't get it. And I never will. And I'm glad I never will. I never will. Agreed. Chaos, idiots, morons. This was a very gut-wrenching episode to picture happening in your head. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that image before I go to bed, Kelly. You're welcome. Listen, if we could record these earlier in the day, that would be great. But you are busy a lot. So this is all kind of based on your schedule, okay? It's your world. I'm just living Thanks it. for listening to another all murder right. history here on Mama Mystery. Mama Mystery out. Bye. Bye.